Truth Espresso, episode 32. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here. Before we get into our topic, I just want to let you know about my free ebook, Jesus, God Among Us. It will strengthen your faith by explaining who Jesus is and what he did for you. Get to know him deeper today than you ever imagined. Snag your copy of my free ebook, Jesus, God Among Us, by going to truthhub.org forward slash Jesus. That's truthhub.org slash Jesus. Why is Jesus Christ worshipped in the Bible? And what does this tell us about who he really is? Hi, this is Daniel Minnick, your host of Truth Espresso, and I am continuing a series of retro episodes from my attempt to start a podcast in the year 2015. I attempted to start what I called the Truth Hub podcast, but it didn't go very far, but I had a lot of valuable content that I did produce in these few episodes, so I figured I could resurrect them and put them into Truth Espresso. So, without further ado, enjoy episode two of the old Truth Hub podcast. Well, hello again and welcome back. We are continuing in our series on foundations and the important foundation of Christology and also that of monotheism. When we last left off, we were looking at the Trinity and uh, the Trinity is confusing to some people, so I'm hoping to make it a little more understandable for you, even those of us who believed in the Trinity, perhaps. Uh, when we were growing up, we've heard uh, simply really bad explanations for what the Trinity is, and so I'm going to go through a few of those, and I'm going to continue on and try to help you understand what the Trinity is and what it is not, and then later on, we'll compare the Trinity to alternatives and see whether they stand up to the light and scrutiny of the Scriptures. Remember that the Trinity was one being, three persons. God is only one God, only one being, one essence. But that one being, that one essence is shared by three co-equal and co-eternal persons. You may have seen uh, an illustration, a, a diagram. It looks like a triangle. And in that triangle, you see... Uh, in the, the corners of it, you have the Father, you have in one corner, you have the Son in another corner, and then you have the Spirit in the third corner. And then uh, attaching the, two, the, the three corners, you have these little paths that uh, basically go around the perimeter of the triangle, and, um, and these paths have uh, the words, is not, 
is not is not for instance if you're reading around the perimeter of the triangle you see the father is not the son and then the son is not the spirit and then the spirit is not the father but then also in addition to that you have these paths going from uh, each of the corners of the triangle into the center of the triangle and in the center you have the word god but these paths connecting each of the corners uh, into the center are attaching each of these persons to god it says is so the tracks around the perimeter say is not but these tracks going into the center say is and so you have when you're reading each of them you see the father is god the son is god the spirit is god so each of the three persons is not the other they are all distinguished from each other personally but all three of them are the one god they all share that one essence of god these are three co-equal co-eternal persons in one being of god i hope you remember that i hope you understand uh, the distinction between being and person Person. Being is what something is. Person is who that is. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff has often called it, he said, the Trinity is one what and three who's, or three who's and one what. Uh, I am a human being, but my person is Daniel Minnick, and you, each of you are a different being, and you have one person. But uh, we are not the same being. We are each separate beings. We are all separate persons. But God is different from us in that he is one being and three persons. And I believe that the scriptures reveal this systematically and clearly. You may have heard these illustrations by people who confess the Trinity. And usually, we, I, I mean, I have no reason to believe that that they don't believe the trinity they just don't necessarily understand it they confess it but in their their mind they don't have that uh categorical distinction between being and person and so some of these illustrations that they bring up are not quite uh accurate so you may have heard this one for instance the trinity is like this i am a father to my children I am also a son to my father, and uh, since uh, I am married, I am also a husband to my wife. See, I am one uh, person, but I am also a father, a son, and a husband. Uh, I have different roles. And at first thought, you might think, hey, that's a good way to uh, explain the Trinity, but the problem with that is, remember, it doesn't uh, maintain that category distinction between being and person in fact that illustration is downright heresy now i don't believe that many of the people who use this illustration are really heretics they just don't understand the roots of this illustration and how it does not accurately reflect the trinity because it makes god out to be one being which is true, but only one person, which is false. I, as I said, I'm one being and one person. I am not an accurate illustration of the Trinity. I am different from the Trinity. And to try to use me as an illustration and just say that the persons are roles that, 
that I perform, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just different roles that the one person of God performs, well, that's not the Trinity. Uh, in a similar vein, you might have heard the illustration that, well, the Trinity is like a, a, an actor on a stage, and he has these different masks, and sometimes he puts on the mask of the Father, and sometimes, you know, he decides, okay, it's time to be the Son, so he takes on the mask of the Son, and then now, uh, since the Son has performed his role, it's time to take on the mask of the Spirit, uh, that is not quite accurate, of course. That is just like the previous illustration. We call this modalism. You know, uh, one person of God, he takes on different modes or different rules at different times. When, as we said, the Trinity is three co-equal and co-eternal persons, all three persons of the Trinity are active at the same time. None of the uh, the first one has the first illustration that we saw has uh, all three roles active at the same time, but they're different. But they're supposed to be different persons in the Trinity. The second one is even worse with the masks because you only have one active at one time, and uh, that's not quite the Trinity. That it's as far from Trinitarian monotheism as you can get. And so, let's not use that illustration. And the third illustration I want to bring up is, uh, well, the Trinity is kind of like the states of, of water. You know, water can take these different forms. It's uh, When it's frozen, it's in a solid state. You call that ice. You can melt it down. It's in a different state in liquid. And then when or water and then when you continue to heat it eventually it evaporates and it becomes gas or steam well just like the masks illustration you only have one at a time now you might have uh, ice in kind of a halfway state where some of it's ice some of it's water and some of it's like steaming off into gas at the same time but still none of the molecules there have all three forms at once which it once again denies the distinction between being and person and the co uh, eternality of the three persons in the one being so the states of water is not a good illustration well then you might be thinking well i'm waiting for that perfect illustration then uh well what exactly is the trinity in uh illustration form how do i explain it to people using an example of the things that i see here on earth that we experience in everyday life well I must be candid here, and I'm going to tell you this for good reason. There is no good illustration of the Trinity. Now you might be thinking, well, if that's the case, why should I believe it? Well, I think we need to go to the Word of God for that case. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40, and, and Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 are a good read. I recommend, I highly recommend that you read and reread Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. This is the, what is called the trial of the false gods. This is 
where many verses come where God shows that he's the only true God, he's the only creator, and he's comparing himself to the idols that the people of Israel were worshiping at the time. They kind of acquired these idols from the Canaanites surrounding them, and God shows the ridiculousness of them worshiping these idols. But Many of the good texts come from this passage that give the point of monotheism, but also things that are relevant to Trinitarianism. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18, Yahweh God says of himself, To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? Uh, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Now, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 5, he repeats the mantra, To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be like him? Sounds like God is telling us, don't compare me with things. Now, why is that? Well, remember, God is the creator, and we are the creation. And one of the problems with uh, making graven images, remember the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment, God says, you will not make unto you, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness. God does not want to be compared to what you see in the creation. Now, I don't I don't for a minute, uh, I am not for a minute claiming that people who use illustrations of the Trinity are committing idolatry. Uh, no, 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 don't get me wrong there. But what I am saying is that it is wise to explain God in a way where you're not stuck on using illustrations where you don't think that proving God's being, proving that God exists or proving what he is like or, you know, depends on illustrations of the creation. Remember, the creator-creation distinction. God is not like his creation. That's why he is the creator and he has the creation. So it is best not to use the creation to explain what God's being is like. It is best to heed God's word and to not think that we need to compare God to something to explain him to skeptics. Here are some other explanations, well, especially this one. This is uh, one of the criticisms of the Trinity by those who are skeptical. It might come from an atheist, or it might come from a cult or another religion that mocks the Trinity, and they'll say, so what you're saying is that 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1? That doesn't make mathematical sense. The last time I checked, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3, and uh, that would be three gods, wouldn't it? Well, sure, 1 plus 1 plus 1 in math equals 3 and not 1. The problem is, remember, there is a category distinction between being and person. So when if you say 1 plus 1 plus 1, what is the 1? What Are you talking about person or being? It's obviously convoluting and confusing the distinction between being and person. So we should not resort to these uh, math tricks to try to explain God. Now, some uh, good Trinitarian apologists have said, no, the correct formula is one times one times one equals one. 
And this is better uh, because it, it maintains a, a mathematical equation that is actually accurate mathematically. But once again, it's uh, it still doesn't distinguish between being and person. I mean, I'm not going to point my finger at someone who uses this and say, heretic. No, not at all. But I still would recommend not having to use something like this because it doesn't distinguish between the categories of being and person. So I would recommend that if you're explaining the Trinity to skeptics and those who oppose the, uh, your, the orthodoxy of, Christ, of the Christian faith, do not use illustrations, do not use mathematical formulas. Focus on explaining the distinction between being and person. Um, without illustrations, I mean, as I said, the illustrations before, you know, I am a being, I am one person, but God is one being, three persons. You can get them to understand being and person, but you don't have to make something in the creation maintain the, the Trinitarian formula so that God can, can be compared to that. No, let's not do that. Now, um... Uh, when it comes to understanding and explaining the Trinity, we must keep in mind that, uh, if you ever heard the Latin phrases, sola scriptura and tota scriptura, what this means, sola scriptura means scripture alone, only scripture. Uh, scripture alone is my sole authority for uh, practice and faith. And then tota scriptura means all of scripture. So not only is, is the scripture alone define uh, my faith, but all, I have to take all of it, not just some of it. We must take all scripture into account as a unified whole to give us a picture of God. You know, uh, what defines many cults is that they focus on a few scriptures that seem to say what they believe as distinguished from traditional Christianity, but they will uh, emphasize these scriptures, and then, you know, an apologist who knows what he's talking about can show other scriptures, and then these cultists have to come up with very convoluted, very uh, wishy-washy explanations of the other verses because to maintain their interpretation of their proof texts. Now, there are two forms of monotheism that I want to talk about, Unitarianism and Trinitarianism. As I've just explained the Trinity already, God is one being, three persons, so therefore Trinitarianism is monotheism, despite what uh, the critics of Trinitarianism will try to say, no, you believe in three gods even if you don't want to admit it. No, Trinitarianism, biblical Trinitarianism is monotheism. Now, there's another form of monotheism. It exists in many different religions or even so-called sects of Christianity. I would call it cults of Christianity. This is Unitarianism. Now, within Unitarianism, there are basically two different forms of Unitarianism. Now, first, let me, before I get to those, let me define Trinitarianism in an important way. Trinitarianism believes that there is only one true God worthy of worship. Let me emphasize that, worthy of worship. No other being receives any kind of religious worship. In Unitarianism, there's only one true God worthy of the highest form of worship. 
uh, why is that? Why am I distinguishing between in Trinitarianism you have only one God who's worthy of worship, and then Unitarianism there's only one true God worthy of the highest form of worship. Unitarianism allows for uh, other beings to receive some form of worship basically because of what Scripture clearly shows happens to Jesus Christ. Now, let me get to the two forms of Unitarianism. One form of Unitarianism that actually began, it was an early heresy in the church. It was a third century heresy uh, called Sabellianism. Uh, it, this is also called modalism or oneness theology. And as I explained, those illustrations of, of the Trinity that people give, the uh, I am a father, a son, and a, and a husband uh, to different people. I perform those rules or I put on different masks and so on like that. Those illustrations are not really of the Trinity. They basically illustrate modalism, oneness, or Sabellianism. This teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one person performing different operations. So in, in modalism, God is one being and one person. Not three persons, but one person acting in three different roles. The second form of Unitarianism, and this is probably the most common form that you'd see in uh, other uh cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphians is um, basically a, a neo, new form of Arianism. That, that's a, uh, an early 4th century heresy. Um, this is also what I would say would amount to what is called henotheism. Now, henotheism believes that, that there is one uh, highest God worthy of worship, but then you have basically other beings that could receive a lesser form of worship that you could call gods in a religious sense that are lesser than that, and they are subject to the to that highest god. Um, there are separate beings where, in this sense, looking at the way henotheists interpret the Bible, the Father, of course, is the only true God and he is one being, the Son is a lesser being. Now, some henotheists will say the Son is the highest creature. He could be an angel, or he could be even above all the angels, or some will say he was a, a sinless, perfect, highly exalted man, but still only a man in his being. And then the Spirit is, of course, impersonal. The Spirit's not a second person. The Spirit is basically an impersonal active force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses explain, or he is God projecting himself. So when you see the Spirit, it's basically the Father communicating or doing things or exercising power in a, a manner that's kind of close to you or something like that. But I'm going to contend against henotheism, against Arianism, against Unitarian monotheism. Remember, I'm a Trinitarian monotheist. The only consistent monotheism that takes all of Scripture into account is Trinitarianism. Now, you can read some scripture and come to henotheistic interpretations. You could say that that's sola scriptura, but... Tota Scriptura, I argue, requires Trinitarianism. 
And I believe I'm going to make that clear when we get to the important and huge issue of worship. God demands that only he is worshipped. Now, when we talk about worship, some people try to make a worship out of the people bowing down before kings in the Old Testament and try to compare that with bowing down before God. Now, it is clear that... Um, Worship of God in the religious sense is unique from the reverence or respect that you give to a human leader or even to an angel. Only God is worshipped as a deity, as divine, as in a religious sense. No one else is worshipped. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18. For thus saith the Lord Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. So, as God, God claims to himself the exclusive identity as God, by virtue of himself claiming that he is the only creator. If he's God, he created everything. And he's the only one who created anything. And there is none else. That will be very important. Verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself... The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. We saw this verse uh, in the previous, uh, the previous podcast, but notice God says that only to him every knee bows, every tongue swears or give allegiance. God has sworn by himself only he is to be worshipped. This is in the same context of him saying, I am God and there is none else, no other God. So the definition of what a God is, is someone who receives worship, but only to God is worship due. Now let's look at Exodus Chapter 34 and verse 14, Yahweh tells the people of Israel, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. You shall worship no other god. So God is commanding. He's not saying, I am the highest god. And so you give me the highest worship, but you can have lesser gods and give them lesser, lesser worship. No, he says, you will worship no other God because Yahweh is a jealous God. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verses 10 through 12. But the Lord Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, he's talking about the Canaanites, and the, the text that follows actually is in the, the Aramaic, the, the language of the Canaanites. He says, thus shall you say to them in their language, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. So let's examine this. 
The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So, what he's saying is that only he is eternal, the rest shall perish. But he's talking about idols. He's talking about the false gods that they, that they were worshiping, uh, adapted from the Canaanites. These were not true gods because he said, Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God. So there's only one true God and all other so-called gods will perish. They will be destroyed. And also notice he said, he has made the earth by his power. He has stretched the heavens by his discretion. No one else gave him input. There's no other God that created. So there's only one God and the only one God is the only one who created created this will be important as i said creation is an attribute of the one true god and worship is the attribute of the one true god only one god created only one god is worthy of worship creation and worship are linked if you do not create you are not worthy of worship Yahweh God says that he is the only one who created and that he is the only one worthy of worship but You might be thinking, you might be recalling to your mind some passages in the New Testament that say that Jesus created all things. So how do we reconcile these ideas uh, without the Trinity? Now let's look at henotheism. Remember Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But yet a henotheist would say that uh, you can have other gods before well, after him, or you can have other gods that are less than him, but God clearly says that he's, he's the only true God. You will not worship any other God. So henotheism is forbidden in Scripture. Exodus 32, verses 4 through 5, And he received them at their hand and fashioned them with a graving tool. And after, after he had made it a molten calf, They said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is the account of uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the commandments of God. And so what are the people going to do at this time? Aaron commits a serious act of idolatry, and he uh, makes... uh, a molten calf out of gold out of the people's earrings and then and then verse 5 and when Aaron saw it he built an altar before it the golden calf and Aaron made proclamation and said tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh now that's pretty interesting Aaron is still worshiping Yahweh the people are still worshiping Yahweh and although only one molten calf was formed the The people said, These, plural, be thy gods, plural, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. But God had earlier said that he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're saying, Yes, Yahweh, you did, but here's another God that also did it. And and they were worshiping Yahweh and this molten calf as two separate gods. We have a repetition of the sin in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 30. And Jeroboam said in his heart, 
Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. And if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again to their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. Now Jeroboam, this is uh, when the kingdom had split and after Solomon's sin, God said that the, the kingdom would split under his son Rehoboam and the captain uh, Jeroboam ruled the north and Rehoboam ruled the south. So verse 28, whereupon the king Jeroboam took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, which was a, uh, a site where jo uh, Jacob saw the vision of the latter and the other he put in Dan. This was another uh, religious site of, signif of historical significance to the people. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. Yet we know that God said that they had to all assemble in Jerusalem for annual worship festivals, but Jeroboam didn't like that because that would mean his subjects would be going down south, and he thought that they might rebel against him in doing that. So he commits the sin of henotheism by creating calves of gold, and he, he never told the people people stop worshiping Yahweh, he said, here's some convenience, you could worship these gods here too. Second Kings chapter 17 verse 33, it says that they, the people, feared Yahweh and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. So they feared Yahweh in some way, but they also served their own gods. So here we have clearly henotheism so henotheism seems to be a bad thing in scripture it is nothing short of idolatry as we can see god didn't say you must regard me as higher than all your other gods he said you shall have no other gods before me it's an all-or-nothing black-and-white concept one true god worthy of worship no hierarchy of gods who get different levels of religious worship. Some seem to think that the Trinity overcomplicates monotheism. But when I look at the alternatives, especially um, forms of Unitarianism, especially henotheism, which many Unitarians are actually henotheists, I see that worship becomes a highly complicated issue. And my friends, we do not want to be guilty of idolatry. Idolatry was the cause of the Israelites being cast out of the land, being given as captives to the Philistines and the Assyrians, all these brutal neighbors around them, and they would keep returning to the land, and then they would commit idolatry and being cast out. Um, God clearly doesn't like idolatry, so it's important to understand who he is, to know what an idol is, to know know the fact that when he says no other god is worthy of worship well there cannot be any separate beings that we would consider as a god and give that being that so-called god a form of worship even if it's less than how we regard the one true god we have no other gods before us now, here's a very interesting case in the scriptures. In, in the book of Revelation, uh, 
the Apostle John receives the apocalyptic vision, and, and in this vision, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we see John says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And he, he continues on, he talks about 24 elders or beasts worshiping this one who sat on the throne, and it's clear that the one who sat on the throne is a vision of the Father. Now we go to the next chapter, Revelation chapter 5. And we look at verses 6 through 14, and John says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, that's pretty interesting in itself, you have one sitting on the throne, but you also have one in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Wow. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Now, take a look at this. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all them that are all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So we see uh, every creature in heaven and earth, under the earth, everywhere, every creature in this context, the one who sits on the throne is the Father. And to the Lamb, the Son, received the exact same worship at the exact same time. This is clearly religious worship given by every creature. Now, we need to take note. It says that every creature worships the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. If the Lamb, the Son, is a creature, wouldn't he be worshiping himself? So if he is being worshipped by every creature, then he is not a creature. That would mean he is eternal, and only God is eternal, as we saw in the previous podcast. So what does that make the Son? Now, let me just show you an example of how worship has become a complicated issue in, in the debate on the Trinity, and especially those who are clearly henotheists. Now, here's a segment from a debate 
a debate that happened in 2008 on the Jewish Voice broadcast. Uh, this is a two-on-two debate on the Trinitarian side. You had uh, Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a, basically a, a Trinitarian Messianic Jew. He is an expert in uh, Semitic languages like Hebrew. He also knows some Ara- uh, Aramaic and Arabic. And then you also have J- Dr. James White, who is the, the president of Alpha and Omega Ministries. He's a, an apologist who's done over 140 debates of, as of this recording against uh, quite a few different uh, types of people. And then on the Unitarian side, you have Sir Anthony Buzzard um, and Joseph Good Jr. Now, these two people uh, believe that Jesus was an exalted man. His, His being was only a man. He was not an angel. He was not the highest creature as as far as, you know, intrinsic power. He was just a man. So that makes them different from Jehovah's Witnesses. But listen to this segment of this debate that has to do with worship. Worship. Oh, okay, so hang on. You quoted John 5. All right. That everyone should honor Anthony did. Everyone should honor the Son the way they honor the Father. Of course. Do you honor the Son exactly the way you honor the Father? Could you get down on your knees right now and as this as everything created does in the book of Revelation and say praise and honor and glory belong to to you, O God, and to you, Lord Jesus. Could you do that, Joe? In that and, and con- do you do in that? that in that context in that context, the way you stated it right there. I wouldn't have a problem with that. Do you do that? Do I do that? Is that in your hymnology? Is that you, you spend time question. worshiping do Yeshua? You do those, that? But you spend time praise, honor, glory. You pray to Him the way Stephen did. Well, you, you let, me, let me let me ask you something. You pray the Lainu? No, I, I don't follow Jewish tradition. That's okay. later. Okay. Uh, well, when Although I pray the Lainu, has exactly that text. Now, whenever I go through that text, whenever I go through that prayer, what do I have in my mind? I don't know. I have, I, in my mind, I have exactly what we read in Philippians, okay? That every knee will bow to him. All right, so how, how about if we just Yeshua, do this exercise here? I see here. Yeshua as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings, that he has been put there. Now, don't uh, make God can, of gods can, can, can we do, say can, Lord of can, Lords. Can we do this? Can we worship God him as God. the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, can you join me in doing this now? Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever to you, Lord Yeshua, and to you, O Father. You can join with me in doing that without compromise, without hesitation. I can, I can do that. I can do that. But it is with my understanding that Hashem has, made, has elevated him to that position. I will not give that glory to a human being. God forbid that I give that glory, that praise, that honor to a human being. And sirs, you should not do it. That is defiling, that is wrong in the sight of God. That glory, worship, and honor only belongs to a divine being. When you worship God and the Lamb side by side as one, and when Revelation 22 tells us Mm -hmm. that his servants forever will serve him, the one God, God and the Lamb, that that tells me that we don't want to... Now think about what you just heard. (laughs) This is a very poignant question. He is simply asking, can you do what we see 
in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Can, can you bow down before the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and give them the same praise and worship? We clearly see it in Revelation chapter 5 where it says that every creature does that. Now, of course, to the henotheist who believes that Jesus is a lesser being somehow from the Father, that you know, they understand the concept of idolatry and, and guess what? Many of them, you know, this is just an academic issue. How many of them pray to the Son, even though in the Bible the Son is prayed to? Or when they do, how many of them are, are consciously careful, making worship overly complicated, trying to think of how do I give the reverence due to the Son um, without committing idolatry toward the Father? Because the Father is the one true God, and I have to give him a, a certain level of, of worship as the one true God. And But I, I, he commands me to worship the Son, as, as Dr. Michael Brown said, do you honor the Son even as you honor the Father? But a henotheist can't do that by definition. They're going to struggle with this. I mean, this part of this debate is something that a lot of people would probably just gloss over as some little incidental part, but it, it reveals something very important to the debate on the Trinity. Those of you who do not believe in the Trinity, who believe that Jesus Christ is a creature, as Arius, uh, the heretic Arius in the early 4th century said, there was a time when the Son is not. If you believe that, if you believe that the Son is a created being, he is a creature, the Lamb is a creature, and yet receives the worship given in Revelation chapter 5, how do you worship the Son? How do you honor the Son even as you honor the Father, as the Son himself said in the Gospel of John? How do you give the worship that is shown in Revelation chapter 5? Does it scare you to try? We need to look at the Word of God and we need to do what it says. We need to believe what it says. We need to practice what it says. We need our worship to be biblical worship. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.